Hi everyone, it's Casper here. We've got some fabulous live shows coming up that we hope you'll be able to join us for. We're in Cambridge, Massachusetts on October 2nd, Washington DC on November 7th, Chicago, Illinois, where my uncle was born, on November 21st, and St. Louis on December 19th. We hope to see you there. Chapter 34, Priori Incantatum. Wormtail approached Harry, who scrambled to his feet to support his own weight before the ropes were untied. Wormtail raised his new silver hand, pulled out the wad of material gagging Harry, and then, with one swipe, cut through the I'm Casper Tekhile. And I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. We are joined today by a dear friend of the podcast, associate professor at Harvard Divinity School, Matt Potts, also Episcopal priest at St. Barnabas Church in Falmouth, Massachusetts, dad of three, husband, dog owner. Hi, Matt. Hi. Thank you for being here. It's my pleasure. You are going to tell us a story through our theme of grief. Yes. Okay. So when I was in graduate school, I traveled to Southern Africa, to a tiny mountain nation called the Sutu, and I was there to work with HIV-impacted orphans. And most of the time I was there, I was there for, I think, about five weeks. Most of the time I was there, I saw lots of healthy, well-cared-for babies. The night before I left, a woman arrived who was bringing an orphan who was severely malnourished. The child was HIV-positive and had some sort of like a common respiratory ailment, but because her immune system was compromised, this was very dangerous. So we took this little child, whose name was Amohalong, into the safe home, and I helped bathe her, and I helped care for her when we first received her. And then the woman who ran the safe home just asked me, like, do you want to hold her? And I said, yes. And so they wrapped her up tight in a blanket, and I held her in my arms, and she was so small. She was like less than two kilos and six weeks old. And I held her and she was so vulnerable and frail. And it was the night before I was meant to leave. And I was holding the child through the night. And I remember sitting there in this dark room, holding her and listening to her breathe, these raspy breaths. And I remember thinking to myself and maybe even saying out loud to her, I would do anything to save you. She was so vulnerable and so weak. I wanted to help her. You know, I was a graduate student, so I didn't have much. But I remember promising all the wealth I had back in the States, if I could get it there in that moment and save her, that I would do it. And I just sat with her through the night. The next morning, I had a bus to catch to get back to the capital to make my flight. And so I gave Amohelong to the woman who ran the safe house. And I told her, you know, let me know what happens to her. I have to go back to America. And I left. And when I got back to the States, I got a text through a text chain of various people who let me know that this child had died. And I was really angry about that because one of the things I learned was that when they took Amohelang to the hospital the morning I left, the doctors wouldn't treat her because she was small, because she was only a few weeks old, because she had HIV. And she ended up dying from a respiratory infection, just from a cough, a really treatable illness. And that made me really angry. And for two years, I was angry about that until later after I was ordained, I was walking home from work one day and I was thinking about her again and getting angry about it again. And I realized all at once in a single moment that given the racial politics of Southern Africa, if I as a Western man had missed my bus and been willing to miss a flight back to America and just gone with her to the hospital, that the doctors would have treated her right away and would have saved her. And it occurred to me in that moment that Despite everything I promised this child, because of an inconvenience, 
I didn't do all I could to save her. And so the reason why it's a story that I associate with grief is not only because it has to do with a death and not only because I grieve over the life of this child who should have survived, but also because I have to grieve over the idea of myself because I thought I was the kind of person who would do anything to save her. And I promised her. I made all these promises. But it turns out I'm the kind of person who would not miss a flight to save her. But what's also hard is that you are the kind of person who would miss a flight to save a child. So it's also grieving that, like, you didn't understand in that moment that you could have. Right. The other thing I'm grieving is I can't undo the past, that some mistakes are irrecoverable, that even if I were that kind of person, I can't go back and fix it, right? So how do you feel that grief, Matt? I'm not sure grief is a feeling. I think that grief is reckoning with what cannot be undone. And I think that all sorts of emotions may attend that reckoning, Mm. anger or sadness. So my feelings about this situation change in all sorts of ways, and they depend upon the situation. But the thing that does not change is the past. The thing that does not change is the past. So does grief ever go away? Like if it's not a feeling, but it's this menu of feelings that come with grief, it's just a reality? Yes. I don't think grief goes away. I think grief is actually a posture Mm. that we have towards the world or towards our lives. So that's really interesting because I think sometimes about how like in our modern world, especially if you're not religious, like there's not really rituals to help you grieve. And that if grief is a posture, grief is also kind of a choice. I, I don't think we can choose whether to grieve or not to grieve. I think that we can ignore the grievable parts of our lives mm. or not. It's interesting because the story I almost told, I was told I'd be asked to tell a story. It was a story of great joy to me, which is about another baby, but it's actually the birth of my daughter, who's eight now, Millie. And it was like the most ecstatic moment of joy in my life when she was born. But when I held her in my arms, one of the things that was absolutely obvious to me, even in all my joy and happiness, was how fragile she was and that she would die and that there would be some things I could not protect her from. And that feeling that however much I love her, however happy I am now, that my powers are limited. There are some things I can't control. And that however much I love her, she will suffer and die. Even my love towards her and that happiness, there is a posture of grief that attends to that. So for me, that's what I mean when I say that there are all kinds of emotions that may attend to grief, if we think of grief as a posture towards the world, which is actually just to understand that we are finite, that we are limited, that all that we love is also finite and limited. If we pay attention to that, I think that means that we are open to grieving those things. But I think that also can be a way by which we attend to them with more care. Because these things are finite, let's care for them better. Because these things are frail, let's protect them. Because this child might die, maybe I should miss my bus. It's recognizing precisely the limits of our agency and the fact that the things we love most are grievable that can stir us to care for them in and how we can. It's also, I wonder how much we have to start telling each other these stories because part of it I would imagine I'm trying to like put myself in your shoes so tell me if it's like nope that wasn't it but it's like you don't want to write the email to your boss saying sorry I missed my flight there was a baby who I thought I could maybe save her life so I stayed (laughs) it's like an awkward 
email to send, right? I think that's right. I also think that paying attention to these limits and to our own limits in a really deliberate way actually helps us make those right choices and miss those buses or whatever, right? Because there's something about, you know, the way I told that story and the way I was talking to Omohelang as I held her, I was using this really triumphal language. I would give everything if I could save your life. Everything's turned up to 11. All the scales are all the way up. Like it has to be some grand gesture. It has to, right? But everybody dies. And this baby, even if I had saved her for that day, she was already at risk. She may only have lived one more year. She may have lived for a couple more years. Or she may have lived for a few more hours. A better and less triumphal calculus would be one that recognized its limits from the outset and said, you know what? To miss my bus, it would be worth holding you for three more hours. Maybe I can't save your life forever. And it doesn't take all the wealth I have back in the States. But just to reduce it to that very finite human scale to say, you know what, to hold you for a few more hours, to let you know even as a six-week-old child that you are loved for six more hours or whatever, that's worth missing a bus. Then maybe you can write your boss and say, I'm sorry I couldn't make it back to work. There was a dying baby I had to hold. I feel like that is a a form of care or a practice of care, which is fully aware of, of its limits, but doesn't let those limits keep it from acting at all. I think one of my mistakes in these midnight promises I was making to this child is I could only conceive of my own agency in terms of the triumphant be-all and end-all restorative act, instead of just what can I as a person in this moment do for this suffering creature in front of me? So I'm imagining our listeners, everybody, you know, walks through the world with grief. They're grieving the loss of a loved one. They are grieving mistakes that they made. What advice do you have for the person who is feels as though they are in a, an acute state of grief? It may be that grief may not be something that we need to pull ourselves out of by our own bootstraps. That when we are in that space of acute grief, what we need is one another. What we need is others to care for us. What we need is to realize is that we are suffering and that we can't do it on our own. And that the pain that we feel is real enough to lay us low. And when we realize that, then we can turn to others to bring us chicken soup or flowers or just to sit in silence with us as we cry. Also, for your listeners who, even if they are not suffering grief of their own, who may have loved ones who are grieving... To recognize one's own limits in that too, right? To not try to pull someone out of their grief before they're ready, but just to be the one who is willing to sit with them in silence as they weep and let them be broken, not feel an urge to be the hero of your story and rescue them from their pain. Matt, before you go, though, I just would love if you spoke for a minute about the project that you and your amazing wife, Colette Potts, work on called Love First. Can you just explain to our listeners what that is? Yes. So Colette is a family therapist, and she also happens to direct the children's ministries at the church I serve. And so she was sort of dissatisfied with the program that we had and redesigned it from the ground up all around love, all around a lot of what we've been talking about, how to care for people who are suffering, how to help children realize that they can offer care to people who are suffering. And so she wrote a book and she developed this program. You can learn more about it at lovefirstproject.org. Her book, Love First, will be coming out in mid-August. That's so exciting. It's very exciting. Yeah, we're very excited. Thank you, Matt. Thank you. So, Casper, I feel like Matt gave us a lot of juicy things to talk about in our theme conversation. But first, let's remind people what happened in the chapter. It's a good one. It is uh, heavy. Not uneventful. No. Yeah. 
<laughs> I think the word you're looking for is eventful. eventful. <laughs> Here we go. Three, two, one, go. Voldemort is like, let's duel Harry, and he does the Cruciatus curse on him. And then he's like, it's time to duel, and they try to duel, and they um, their wands lock. And Harry figures out that as long as he holds on to the wand, like he has some power, and then things start coming out of Voldemort's wand, including Bertha and Cedric. And then Cedric is like, take me back with you. And all the Death Eaters are trying to kill Harry. And um, his dad is like, the use the port key to go back to Hogwarts. And Cedric is like, don't forget me. And so he grabs Cedric, and he grabs the port key, and he goes back to Hogwarts. That was a very strong recap. Thank you. It's an eventful chapter. It's not uneventful. (laughs) Let's see what not uneventful you can talk about. Okay, great. Okay. On your mark, get set, go. So Voldemort crucios Harry and so Harry's in pain, like, "Ah, ah," and like crying. And then um, Voldemort is like going to do it again. But Harry like hides behind a thing. And then um, um, he's like, and there's no, we're not playing hide and seek, Harry. And Harry's like, I don't want to die, like begging for my life at his feet. So let me stand. And then he, but he's like, the only thing that I know, the only cuss that it's not even a cuss it's just Expelliarmus. So he does that and then the ones connect and it's like green and red together make gold. And then, and that's, yeah, and then all the things you said. I really feel like all of our listeners miss out on the hand motions. <laughs> it's true. That was not just a verbal recap. That were actions. Next week, I'm going to post a video of Casper doing his recap. <laughs> so Casper, one of the things that Matt's story made me think about was how Grief is just a constant part of our lives and that there are moments of grief in our daily lives. I'm wondering if you see that at all in the chapter. It really struck me reading this chapter this time. In the first half of the chapter, we hear about Harry's parents two or three times. And so there's this kind of foreshadowing of the fact that both of them do return. And it just made me think about how even in their absence, they end up being present Of course, they're coming back through magic, but there's this constant awareness of Harry's grief, especially in this moment where he kind of sees his own end is coming. Like, death is very present to him. There's just something about the grief that's with him, especially now, but has kind of always been there. Yeah, and what's interesting is that Voldemort brings it up, right? right? He says to Harry, you'll die like your father died, straight-backed and proud, And Voldemort is the only living witness to James's death. And I was just thinking that he's getting this new, really big piece of information while he has all of these other things to be worrying about in this moment, which makes me think that, like, waves of grief Mm. come at us at very inopportune moments. And I'm even just thinking about, like, grieving a relationship. If you're in a romantic relationship that ends, walking by this restaurant is hard because that's where we had our first date. All of these things remind you of that person and you just have to keep going about your day. Yeah, it feels like grief kind of attacks you, like you're just overwhelmed in moments. It's interesting to think about how his parents actually emerge through an attack and they have something to say to him. Each of the characters who have died has something to say to him, even Frank and Bertha, who've never met him. So just that idea of grief taking us to the edge, and at the edge we encounter new conversation partners, that really struck me. Crisis quite literally brings people together, right? It's Mm. over a crisis that you will call people and say, I need you to come. At my grandfather's funeral, I got so annoyed with somebody. Somebody came up to me, and I was happy to see them. 
And if my grandfather hadn't died, I wouldn't have seen her, right? Mm. I hadn't seen her in years. And I thanked her for coming. And she said, never thank somebody for coming to a funeral. It's bad luck. And I don't know if it's like a Jewish superstition, if that's Mm. like true. But I was so frustrated with her. I was like, no, thank you for coming when there is a crisis, Mm. right? Like that matters Mm. because otherwise nothing good comes from this. If we don't get to show our love at these moments, then like what possible good is there? Mm. And so, yeah, I think that Lily and James, they show up for him again and again. And I think the voices of the people who we loved do. And maybe that's one of the benefits of grief. By grieving someone, you think about them more and you sort of write them onto your heart more so that when you're in moments of crisis, you can sort of call on their memories. You know what really struck me about that scene as well was that the ghostly figures aren't just talking to Harry, they're also talking to Voldemort. And we don't know what they say, but I wonder if they were kind of cursing Voldemort. Like they know Harry so well, do these characters have something really intimate to say to Voldemort? Because Voldemort loses in this moment. Those ghosts overpower him. There's something that they are able to do, which he cannot withstand. And we know that Voldemort omits to think about ancient magic and magic that is primal and magic that is about love. Like he only thinks about power magic, not about love magic. You know, maybe he doesn't understand grief. And this is kind of a grief magic that is drowning him in some way. I I just found that so striking. I hadn't noticed that before. Yeah. I mean, these are people he's killed who he's never grieved. It's like they are haunting him. Yes. It's like, you never cared, but like, look at us, we're human. Oh, that's really juicy to think about the people who we owe grief to. You know, it's not like Frank was a target that Voldemort sought out and wanted to destroy, right? Frank just got in his way. And so he doesn't even know this guy's called Frank, right? And so I think maybe in different ways, we too have thrown people out of our way to get what we want. There are things that we've done which we should be grieving. And if we're not conscious of them and trying to atone in some way, they do stay with us. I think that's a very compelling and theologically quite challenging idea as well, because it really brings forth that idea of sin and how are you forgiven for it? And is forgiveness even possible? I think about that in terms of if, like, someone hasn't returned a text or call. That's the kind of thing, exactly. I'm like, oh, how dare they? And then I'm like, how many people have I accidentally hurt? Oh, I thought you were going to say, like, now I'm going to haunt them in their bathroom. no. No, but how many people have I hurt without even knowing that I have hurt them? And whenever I feel overwhelmed by that idea, the only thing I can think to do is try to forgive someone who it's hard for me to forgive and Mm. hope that they are sort of doing the same for me. That is the only thing I can think to do is to Mm. pay it forward because I'll never know the people who I've hurt that I don't know I've hurt. I'll just never know. Mm. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Quip. Harry Potter and the Sacred Text listeners, I don't want to scare you, but three members of the Not Sorry Productions team have recently lost a tooth. Now, none of this was because of bad brushing. It was because of accidents that happened. But I am concerned about people who love Harry Potter and their teeth. Quip's electric toothbrush can help you in your routine of keeping your teeth 
healthy and sparkling clean. The Mirror Mount For Your Quip toothbrush puts brushing front and center in your bathroom, so you'll remember to bookend the day using your new brush. The built-in two-minute timer that pulses every 30 seconds to remind you when to switch sides and help you clean your whole mouth makes sure that you brush for the entire two minutes. The multi-use cover is amazing, it works as a stand, and also helps with sanitary reasons. Brush heads are automatically delivered on a dentist-recommended schedule of every three months for just $5. A friendly reminder as to when it's time to refresh and stay committed to your oral health. Please, this is a public service announcement from somebody who has all of her teeth and who loves a lot of people who have recently lost one tooth. Brush your teeth. Quip makes it easy and fun to brush your teeth, and that is why I love Quip and why it's perfect for getting back into a routine after the summer. Quip starts at just $25, and if you go to getquip.com slash Harry Potter right now, you can get your first refill pack for free. That's your first refill pack for free at G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash Harry Potter. My brother and sister-in-law have a fig tree, and it makes me sad because I live 3,000 miles away from the fig tree, and I love figs. I think they are like proof of a higher being. Now I resent them less because due to Fleur's amazing Hanami scent, I get to smell like the fig tree. They make stunning non-toxic perfumes and they list all of their ingredients online. You get a good scent made with clean ingredients. And the sample process is just good old fun. Here at Harry Potter and Sacred Text, we actually got to put together our own floor sample set filled with our favorite scents. So if you're not sure where to start, make sure that you check that out. And definitely try to smell like my brother and sister-in-law's fig tree with the Hanami scent. Then when I meet you, I'll love you more because you'll smell like home. Go to Fleur.com slash Harry Potter today to check out our curated sample set and get 20% off of your first custom Fleur sample set. That's P-H-L-U-R dot com slash Harry Potter to get your first three Fleur fragrance samples at 20% off. Fleur.com slash Harry Potter. I feel like in this chapter we see Voldemort kind of as a death doula. Like before the duel begins... He's really insistent about Harry bowing. He says, bow to death, Harry. In our culture, we're so afraid of death. And Voldemort embodies that more than anything else in this whole story, the kind of running from death, the fear of death, the wanting to be everlasting. And yet he's the one who says to Harry, bow to death. And I I just think that grief in such a way is about bowing to death. It's bowing to the inevitability of death. It's bowing to the unpredictability of death. You know, I remember talking about in season one that I, in the shower and every morning I kind of say to myself, oh, I could die today. And that it's actually a really life-giving thing. It just struck me that it was ironic of all the people to give that kind of wisdom. It's Voldemort who tells Harry that. I was struck by that too, because to some extent I love that idea. The part of me that like did karate for so many years loves that idea. But in Judaism, you are not supposed to bow. Part of the Purim story is that Mordechai would not bow to Haman, and so Haman decides to kill all the Jews. And the way that Jews respond to that ritualistically is to redouble on the efforts of never bowing. Whenever the word bow comes, my instinct is to remember the idea of resistance. And so I think part of bowing to death is saying, 
life matters. To me, bowing, which is about subservience, is bound up in this idea of resistance. And Harry resists it. I mean, he does not bow intentionally. There's this great parallel with this language about James of being straight-backed and not cowering. And the only reason why Harry bows in the end is because he's imperious, or at least there's this force on his back which pushes him down. Casper, where else did you see this theme of grief in this chapter? I was really struck by the imagery surrounding this force field around Voldemort and Harry, and they're surrounded by this sphere. The rest of the Death Eaters just are muffled out to Harry. Like, he can't even see or hear them. Like, the rest of the world doesn't even come into his experience in the same way that if you've just lost a loved one or something awful has happened, you're walking around in the world, but the world doesn't really come close to your experience. And in fact, it no longer actually makes sense. Like, I remember having that feeling of, why is everyone just like ordering a latte? Don't you know? You don't realize this has happened? So I just love that imagery of that they are literally set apart, like as Harry is encountering these people he has grieved. Yeah, my favorite thing about Judaism is the way that it ritualizes grief. And the people who are grieving are set apart. One of the things that I really love is that if your, you know, mother just died, for example, other people have to wait for you to speak. And if you want to speak, they speak to you. And if you want to sit in silence, they are to sit in silence. Uh And if you want to talk obsessively about ice cream, they have to talk about ice cream. And if you want to talk about your mom, they have to listen about your mom. And there's this sense of separation to your point of we are going to help you reacclimate to the world, but we're going to meet you in your space of grief mm-hmm. first. Mm-hmm. Was there anything else that you noticed that really struck you? I'm struck by what Cedric asks of Harry, right? Oh, gosh, yeah. Cedric says, bring back my body. And Harry nearly dies, certainly risks his life in the effort to bring back Cedric. And Cedric says, bring back my body for my parents. Mm. And that is just, to me, an offering of giving his parents an easier way to grieve. His body isn't necessary. Harry could really have an easier chance of saving his own life if he went just ran for the port key. But I just think that there's so much honoring of Cedric in this and Cedric honoring that his parents are going to want his body in order to grieve him. Yeah, it reminds me so much of the massively important part that place has to play in grief, that you have a place to go physically with your grief. And traditionally, that might be a gravestone. But by bringing Cedric's body back... It's enabling his parents to bury him. This, you know, that those old traditions of allowing your enemies to go and collect their dead from the battlefield, that it was a much worse dishonor to not bury someone than to kill them, even in some way. There's this great nobility in this action for Harry, but also a practical way, I think, for him also to grieve what's happened. There's something about not even having to explain what's happened. Like, here is the evidence first, but also, like, here is someone who has another person who has died in vain. I think that we as a culture have an interesting and appropriate obsession with honoring the dead's wishes. Hundreds of years after someone like Carnegie has died, he is still managing his endowments from the grave. And we honor that, even though we have all this information now that there might be better ways to spend your money. 
but we still honor that. And I think that in part we do that out of fear because we want to be honored when we died. And so it feels like a, a social contract that we have to keep. But it's also just this belief like once you can't argue with someone anymore, you just respect their wish. Yeah, that's so true. Casper, you know, the very last line of the chapter mm. is the moment that Harry felt the jerk behind his navel. That meant the port key had worked. It was speeding him away in a whirl of wind and color and Cedric along with him. And then there's this like switch in sort of tone and it says that they were going back. Mm. And I just know in moments of grief in my life, right after someone dies, you don't want to talk about them in the past tense yet, mm. right? You want to keep saying they are the kind of person who, and I feel like the they were going back. It's this beautiful way of saying it's not Cedric's body. It's mm. still Cedric. Yeah. And there's such interesting ideas of when in ancient Christianity, like when did the soul leave the body? Was there a period when the soul was still in the body even after death? Was it days? Was it hours? Was it with the last breath? You know, that you see those kind of images drawn in old Bibles where the soul literally goes through the mouth of the dying person in that final breath. And it's such a striking image, I think. I just want to say it's so beautiful of Harry to risk his life to bring back Cedric's body. Yeah. I feel like I would look at Cedric in that moment and be like, I'll try. <laughs> like, I don't want to die. I just don't think I would be strong enough. Yeah. to do what Harry does here. Yeah. Vanessa, it's time for our spiritual practice, and we are doing Chavruta. And my question to you is this, and we haven't really talked about it yet, so I'm interested what you'll think. The way I remembered this scene of the figures coming out of Voldemort's wand was people he had killed. But the first thing that comes out of his wand is actually Peter Pettigrew's hand. It's not even a whole human being. What does that mean? I'm just really curious about that. So my answer is this, which is that grief happens often before someone dies. And I was thinking of someone who might develop Alzheimer's or someone who goes missing, but we can't know for sure if they're dead or not. Like there's ways of having to encounter finality of departure in some way. A part of someone can die and we grieve that without it being their whole self. Well, so to me, the sort of like thesis of the things that are coming out of the wand are like harm that Voldemort has done. Mm. Things that are soul deadening. And mm. I think that the Avada Kedavra curse is obviously the curse that breaks your soul in half. But I think anytime you do something evil and like don't reckon with it, don't repent for it, don't grieve it, part of you dies. You become more callous. If mm. instead of like Matt, you think about it constantly and one day come to a different conclusion, but instead you just like let it be true and don't apologize in any way, it breaks you. It chips away at you. Yeah. And so the things that are coming out of the wand in reverse order are the violences that he has done and that he has no repentance for. Harry is like pulling them out and almost healing them. It's like Voldemort is not going to reckon with you, so Harry will. And he's giving those ghosts a chance to reckon with Voldemort directly. And that's the kind of the speaking oh. to. Yeah. Harry, through his love and goodness, is able to give them a chance to confront Voldemort. 
Yeah, and I wonder. We know what the embodied bodies do, but we don't know what the hand does once it's in this kind of sphere. And I wonder, knowing that Wormtail's hand, his fake hand, later is going to play such an important role. I wonder if this hand. Does it just slink away into the corner? Most likely, but maybe it comes up to Voldemort in some way and wants to, I don't know, like... Slap him? Yeah, like it wants revenge, it wants equity, you know, I wonder. This is probably because I watch so much Grey's Anatomy, but I spend a lot of time thinking about amputees and just the different ways that we grieve our aging bodies. My body used to be able to do X, and now it can't. Um, or my mom, you know, my mom is still young, and she takes great care of her body. She, like, walks miles a day and does yoga three days a week and is, like, trying to age with as much dignity as she can. She's an incredible woman. She is. But she's, like, getting arthritis in her hands. So I think to your point, exactly, we can grieve for our body parts in all sorts of different ways. You hear that a lot about women after they have babies, right? It's like, I'm grieving for the pre-baby body that I had. Or, you know, men as they lose hair. I grieve for my brown hair because it's graying. I was at a friend's house recently and she had in her bathroom mirror, she had this beautiful quote from Catherine of Siena, who's a saint from the 14th century. And it's so simple and I, I just love it. She writes, what is it that you want to change? Your hair, your face, your body. Why? For God is in love with all those things and might weep when they are gone. And I just feel like that's so true about each of these whole bodies, but also even even Wormtail's hand. Like, if he had believed in the preciousness of his hand more than its utility to bring back Voldemort, like, Voldemort could not be alive. Like, I just think sometimes maybe we undermine the preciousness of our own bodies. It's time for our voicemail, and this week we're hearing from Jessica Hyde. Hi, Casper, Vanessa, Ariana, and the rest of the Harry Potter and Sacred Text team. I've been following you since the beginning, but this is the first time I felt compelled to leave you a voicemail. I've just finished listening to your most recent episode, Inspiration, The Madness of Mr. Crouch, and I wanted to reach out with a blessing based on a comment John made during your Lectio Divina. John mentioned that he finds it heartbreaking not to know about the injuries his children are nursing. When I was 15, I was taken in by my very own Moody, someone who was pretending to be someone else, and I ended up hurt both physically and mentally, and feeling very, very alone. My parents brought me up to be strong, independent, and incredibly caring, and it is out of this need to look after others that I've never told my family the true depth of my hurt and instead chose to nurse myself. From this I've become more resilient, and as an adult I have sought support from other places, but out of compassion, I plan to never tell my family the truth. Listening to John's comment, I was left feeling incredibly guilty. I would like to offer a blessing to anyone who is nursing an injury that they feel they cannot share. In the immortal words of Christopher Robin, you are stronger than you seem, braver than you believe, and smarter than you think. Thank you. Jessica, thank you so much for that voicemail. And, you know, I think that's right. It's something that's easier to think about when we think about the things that we don't tell children in order to protect them. But there is a fair and reasonable instinct to protect certain people from things. And there's sort of um, a utilitarian harm calculus that we have to do in order to take care of ourselves and also of the people we love. And I'm just so sorry that you were put in a position where you had to make that kind of decision. And I'm grateful for you sharing your story about it. 
And thank you so much for listening from the very beginning, Jessica. And for quoting Christopher Robin. That's also pretty amazing. Casper, it's now time for us to offer a blessing. Who would you like to bless this week? I want to bless Harry. I feel like he is overwhelmed by what is going on. Like, it is way beyond his rational mind. He's being thrown in the air. His wand is doing things he's never seen before. He's seeing his parents engage with him in this very unexpected, traumatic place. And yet he's able to maintain somehow a clarity of focus to push that little bead through the light connection all the way into Voldemort's wand. Being able to receive the kind of Phoenix's song, the way that music moves him to stay in the struggle, I just find so beautiful. So for anyone who's in over their head or feels like they're overwhelmed, this blessing is for you. And I, I hope there's some Phoenix song, some music that can accompany you in this difficult time. How about you, Vanessa? I would like to bless Bertha Jorgens. She is finally able to say something. She's finally given a voice. And her moment is, like, too brief. And it's sort of too late, but it still matters. And I think a lot of women are in that position right now in this cultural reckoning of the Me Too movement. And so I just want to offer blessings to anyone who's speaking out, because even if it feels too late, your voice still matters. Bertha's voice matters. It encourages Harry until his mom can get there. And your voice matters. So mm. thank you. You've been listening to Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and leave us a review on iTunes. Or send us a two-minute voicemail at harrypottersacredtext at gmail.com. Next week, we'll be reading Chapter 35, Veritaserum, through the theme of betrayal. This episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text was produced by Ariana Nettleman, Casper Terkyle, and me, Vanessa Zoltan. Our music is written by Ivan Paisau and Nick Bull, and we are part of the Panoply Network. You can find ours and other great shows on panoply.fm. Thanks to Jessica Hyde for this week's voicemail, to the amazing Reverend Dr. Matthew Potts for our story. Rebecca and Charlie Ledley, Julia Argy, and of course, Stephanie Purcell. We'll see you all next week. Harry Potter. Harry Potter? Do you think Dolores Umbridge uses quip? <laughs> I think. Him. Get quip. <laughs> hey there. Do you think we get loopy in the studio because there's literally less oxygen that, in here? Uh, yeah. I'm Joseph Fink, and I'd like to introduce you to I Only Listen to the Mountain Goats, a podcast about the shifting line between artist and fan. When I was a child, reading the authors that I loved and listening to the music that I loved, the thing I got from that is that feeling of, of being understood somehow, and that weird connection, where it's not the person, it's not the stranger, it's the thing they've made that opens this space for self-reflection. I only listen to The Mountain Goats. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts.